Hello, this is The Parent Panel, a weekly podcast that invites one mum and one dad to share their wisdom on everything from common parenting challenges to events in the news. I do a massive job keeping them alive. I'm not going to climb up that slide and go down that slide and ruin my pants. Two nights ago, my daughter punched me in the face for a laugh. And then I just, I just, I spent the next half an hour making her feel better about punching me in the face. My wife and I have this great saying with each other, and that is, the days are long, but the years are short. The Parent Panel with Siobhan Hunt. Danielle Colley is our mum. She's a life coach at Your Good Life and has a boy and a girl Last time we spoke, they were six and eight. Has anyone had a birthday? Seven and nine. Seven and nine. Oh, my goodness. That's crazy. Yep. And our dad is Sean Zepps, a blogging broadcaster who has toddler twins, also a boy and a girl who are now two. two. Still two. Yeah. When's their birthday? September 11th. (gasps) Dun, dun, dun. Uh I know. Yeah. That's why you moved to Australia. Exactly. (laughs) Okay, today we're talking about what you don't do at Christmas, lice, and we're reflecting on the year that was. First up today, we're talking about work-family balance. I've given everything I have to this job, and I love it, I do, but I can't dump my family at a moment's notice anymore. I won't do it. If what I have to give is not enough for you, then fire me. That's Sarah Jessica Parker in the 2011 film, I Don't Know How She Does It. It's about a working mum trying to balance out the love and responsibilities of her for her family and the same that she has for her work. And it's, it's a perennial struggle. I mean, how do you actually manage a balance between work and family life? So this week in the Sydney Morning Herald, Wendy Tui highlighted several reports that came out in October this year, all illustrating the stressful impact of work on mothers. Now, statistically, we do know that women are still the ones that carry the majority of the domestic burden. Amen. (laughs) Even though, even when both parents work. But it has to be said, more and more dads are stepping up. And so they're having to grapple with the work-family balance. Danielle, what is or has been your pain point when it comes to managing your work and family life? I think... Look, it's, it, t- I mean, time. There is not enough time. Time is so slippery. Um, I remember years ago before I had children and I was working uh, as an audio producer in advertising. And I remember one morning we had a really early morning meeting in an advertising agency. And there was a mum there who was really glum this early morning. And I said, hey, what's going on? You know, we had a nice relationship. I said, what's up? She said, it's my daughter's first day of school and I can't be there. And I said to myself that day, I am never, ever doing that. Like, I'm not doing that. So for me, every single step of my career, everything I've ever done, I've always ensured that I have a flexibility. And if, you know, there isn't that flexibility, then, you know, sometimes I've even changed careers. Um, So I think that if... You know, if something is super valuable to you and you continually compromise it, you start to feel that level of discomfort, um, which leads to the discontent, which, as Wendy said in her thing, you know, so many prominent women are now backing out of their careers saying, you know what, I just want to spend some time with my family. So, I mean, there there is no magic answer for, you know, how to fit it all in. You know, there's always going to be large amounts of yelling to get out the door in the morning. (laughs) It's like, come on, we've got to be there on time and where are your shoes and all that sort of stuff. But I think that, 
you know, having a workplace, you need to have a workplace that is more flexible and more understanding these days. I don't think that workplaces can get away with it anymore, being inflexible um, around this kind of stuff. Because, I mean, the interesting thing that you said there was that every step of the way you've made a choice, which I must, uh, it couldn't have always been easy. Like, you would have had to fight for that. And I know both of you have um, creative jobs. And, Sean, you've made changes even this year Mm -hmm. to try and work out that balance. Yeah. Talk us through that. I mean, what was the painful part that kind of made you make the change? Mm. I think I'm really lucky that I fall into a set of parents in their very early 30s who grew up in the digital revolution um, in a time where women were working my entire life that I had the ability to see people around me and understand what was happening. Women were in the workplace. Men uh, kind of being pushed back into the house and and challenged to be more empathetic. And so when I got into the workforce, I just had amazing role models around me. A lot of really great women who demanded a specific schedule and made sacrifices, sacrifices ahead of getting the job. I knew many women who left companies 12 months in advance who were like, I have to, I have no choice. The policy isn't strong enough here, so Mm -hmm. I need to make a move for my family. Men haven't really ever historically had to do any work like that ahead of time. And I've gotten a lot of pushback for this recently by saying men need to really step up to the plate the way that women have for the last two decades and going up to their bosses and saying, if I can't have this, cut my salary. If I can't have this, change my job position. If this doesn't work for me, a la Sarah Jessica Parker, then fire me. And so when I got into the workforce, I didn't ask permission. I told them what I was doing. I can only be here two days a week. I have to leave at five o'clock, non-negotiable. And I get up out of meetings and walk away. Are people going to roll their eyes at you? Absolutely. I was that person when I was 19 working in an office and saw these moms, usually moms, rushing away five in the middle of a meeting. But you have to set standards for yourself and people do respect them. Whenever I say that, I get pushback that, you know, the higher you climb, the more difficult it becomes. And I buy that. I, I understand if you're the CEO of Facebook or Google, it might be a little more challenging. But you, can, you can't let that get in the way of you going to the people who are supposed to be mentoring, managing, and working with you to produce a product and not tell them your truth. Mm-hmm. And I just, I wish a lot more people thought strategically in advance about what they needed to be the best parents possible and also what you need to be the best person possible. So for me, it was as simple as I'm going to my boss and I'm telling them I want to work just two days. And when I felt free to go in more, I went all the way up to five. And when that didn't work for me, I backed up again. Did that mess with the company? I'm sure it did. But at the end of the day, it's it's all about me. They can choose to say no. Can I ask, I'm just curious because um, this is a very non-scientific scientific observation, but I, when I've had friends who um, have been my age that have grown up in America, when we talk about things like working parents, etc., it feels like feminism was almost a complete generation ahead in the States or that things Mm. were starting to change. I know that your maternity leave is non-existent and terrible, but in the sense of what women were demanding and what they were accustomed to accepting as the norm seemed a little bit further ahead than us. And I don't know if you've observed that coming here, whether you think you were in a place where women were, were making those changes at times when 
we probably wouldn't have seen the same kind of Yeah, that's interesting. Strength. I mean, a majority of the most successful businesses in the world happen to be in America. And so all of the press stories around successful women climbing the ladder happen to be out of the States. And so if you're growing up in the advertising world like we did, then you saw Sheryl Sandberg climbing the ladder at a super young age and taking over this massive empire of Facebook and putting out books and talking to women directly. I actually think mentor programs, which in every country were very popular in the 60s and 70s where men started at a job, sometimes women, but mainly men, they were given a mentor, right? It was a part of the program. Or you had to go through multiple years of training where you got to dip your toe into a bunch of dif different disciplines and then decide where you wanted to work. Well, that's been gone for decades. But in America, there is still a, a powerful conversation around women mentoring women and the importance of that and the power of that. Mm -hmm. And so when I was in New York City, there were specific meetings and groups that were just for women, just for mothers. Wow, that's because it's a different amazing, conversation. It? Now that might just be New York, but well, I mean, we have there is to an extent like that sort of mentoring thing. Certainly in some uh, arenas in Australia, I can't speak for all because I don't know, but I know you know certainly some uh, forward-thinking corporates have got you know sort of the mentorships going, in, and it is that kind of. Um, women helping women you know uh helping them to have uh the boundaries the values the you know the, i guess the support in such a mm. sort of um sausage heavy environment yeah. <laughs> um, um but sausage you know there's heavy. but there's certainly lots of women in media mentorship and stuff like that which is yes, you know you know st sticking sticking with each other and helping each other through that sort of thing but uh something that you said really resonated with me which is like you know in the outset understanding what your own values are and having really clear boundaries around mm. it. Um, because so many people aren't clear on what their values are and therefore they're not clear on their boundaries. And then there's so much resentment, right? You get, you just really get hacked off and it's like that, you know, they don't understand. So like, well, have you told them? Have you explained what's really important to you? Have you explained why it's important to you and, and how you can come up with solutions together that are really viable and help you feel supported and help you to grow in this environment? It's like, oh, no. You know, yeah. so it's like it's it's having the courage to really like check in with yourself, see what is really important to you, and speaking that truth. And probably speaking the truth before you're in a really vulnerable position, like mm. <laughs> you've had your baby and you're tired and you yep. are emotional, or you just having the children there at yeah. any point, you'd be vulnerable about going and asking because you think, well, where do I go if they say no? We but also the issue can't. Is, sometimes you don't know. Sorry, Sean, mm. but sometimes you don't know what you don't know. Like yeah. you don't know what you need until suddenly you're like, actually, I thought this was going to work. It's a little bit harder. Uh, that's why having really open uh, communication, having those sort of channels of communication is really important. Mm. Mm. And the power of open communication in this particular decade, we are in a transition period where the entire workforce is adjusting. What does it mean to be part-time, full-time? Can you work from home? Can you not? Literally almost every job has the ability at some point in your nine-to-five, five-day-a-week work schedule that you could be working remotely. And so for us to lean heavily on gold standards of the decades past is, to be blunt, bullshit. Like, you have an opportunity to redefine the structure. The only way to do that is open communication, is mm. to come and say, listen, I know this isn't anything you've ever had to work out before. I know you've never had a director of a corporation working from home two days a week, but that's what I need. And if I provided value to the business ahead of time, you've worked there for a year or two or three or four, you do have a lot 
to kind of go in with. We're getting much better at negotiating our salaries. And by we, I mean men and women. We're getting a little bit better at going home and talking about our values with our partners and, and articulating what we really want. So we just have to like pull those two things together, bring it to our bosses and say, without any understanding of what they're going to say back to you. This is what I want and this is what I need. And then mm. who you, you can't predict what they're going to say. So don't let that cloud the ability to have the conversation. You just have it. All right. Up next, there's a lot of things to organize at Christmas time. But what have you refused to do? Holly Wainwright from Mamma Mia, she's a regular parent panel guest, has started writing lists about things she does not do. So it's basically her way of sticking her finger up at the idea of perfect parenting. And so she wrote one earlier in the year. She decided to write one for Christmas, which I love. On that list, she includes, I don't finish my Christmas shopping by December 1. I don't buy different wrapping paper for Santa presents. I don't cook complicated Christmas lunch and I don't do the washing up. Sean, what don't you do at Christmas? You're going to love this because you and I have had this conversation off mic. And (laughs) what I don't do is allow other people to judge me for loving Christmas so much. There is this thing going around in Australia, in the media landscape, across multiple different publications that say Christmas is dead, it is dying, and all of the reasons why are fantastic. It's like, uh, we have to be really careful about what we say, and we don't want to lie to our children, and the world is so scary, we should feel bad about spending money frivolously on our children, and when global warming is happening, why would you... I get that. Those are really strong arguments. But I am not going to allow anyone to light a fire on my amazing holiday that I enjoy. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. It's a staple of my childhood. I want to enjoy it. I want to decorate. I want to be opulent. I want to go over the top. I want to I get want my to sit kids on excited. I want it all. <laughs> I do. Come on. I want to listen to songs that everyone says we can't listen to anymore that are old Christmas gold standards. And that's my big don't because I really struggled with sharing. All of us share our lives on social media in some way. I have an audience that's quite sassy with me sometimes. And I was like, should I not post these things? I'm seeing all these articles saying Christmas is dead or it's changed. And I just decided, you know what? I'm not. Go- I'm going to because I freaking love Christmas. I loved my childhood. Yes. And I want my kids to have those memories too. I, I love it too. I love that. Yeah. Well, we did sort of talk about how we give ourselves a, a well, I, um, we all give ourselves a, a limit of what we can buy. And I went over it for everyone, (laughs) including my husband. I'm like, this is all we can spend. And the very next day, I went and bought him something that was more than what we had agreed to spend. Because I love giving. I love... I love Christmas as so well. So your don't is I don't stick to budgets, <laughs> no, matter, no matter how stringently we agreed. You know, and the thing is, most people who know me wouldn't know that already. Yeah. That I but I do, I, what, what Sean and I were talking about before was, um, I guess my pet hate, I love that we've moved off topic about what we don't do, but my pet hate is when people say that telling your kids Santa Claus is real is lying to them because my thing is, well... Childhood is about imagination. Childhood is about in believing in the unseen. And when you become an adult, you don't believe in friggin' anything. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And that was the beauty of childhood for me. It was C.S. Lewis and the Narnia books. It was believing my toys came alive at night. And 
I knew as a, I knew that when I became an adult, that wouldn't be there anymore. And so I want my kids to have that real childhood imagination. It's not lying if you make believe. It's just happened in my house. What's happened? Oh, oh they found. Oh. Someone found out. My seven-year-old asked oh. her father no. if Santa, the Tooth Fairy and the Easter Bunny were real. And he said, no, all dead in one foul swoop. No. All dead. Dad. And, yeah. Kapow. The Tooth Fairy is yeah. real. She's right here in the room with us. And she put a lot of effort into dropping the coin off under the pillow. Um, so, you know, and she's such a big thinker. And, you know, I talked to her about magic, you know. And I said, if you want to believe in the magic of Christmas, then you keep believing in it. And yet, yes, you know, now you know the cat's out of the bag. However, there is something so beautiful about having this idea about this person who created the presence. And, you know, we talked about historically about uh, St. Nicholas and all that sort of stuff because her father is Dutch. Um, So we've had lots of discussion around the power of believing in magic and and how there's not a lot of magic in the world, but it is where you choose to find it. Mm. Um, So I've tried to have these like really like, you know, beautiful conversations because I'm not ready for it to be over. Tooth Fairy, Easter Bunny, whatevs, but Christmas. Oh, nice. Um, But as for my, I don't do, because this is something that has like really shat me to tears. The gifts for every single kid in the class far oh, no. out. No, 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 no. Wait no, a second, I don't that's do that. a thing. That no, is a no. thing. Some what? parents do that. They like the, you know whether it's like a and so many lollies. They all give each other lollies. Like, yeah. So yeah. many lollies. It's so interesting you say that because my daughter was coming home with all these Christmas cards and speaking as someone who may or may not have come into the office this week and given everyone in the office a Christmas card. <laughs> I thought. Do I want her to have to start feeling that she needs to give everywhere? I I do the cards because I love to do them. But when I was at school, it was you give because they gave to you. Yeah. Mm. And I'm not, I didn't know if I wanted her to start that. And so we left it till the very end and I said, look, we'll buy some candy canes, lollies, and some cards. You just oh, decide I what you want to do. Just because I hate it doesn't mean I didn't do it. I, <laughs> but presents, that's a whole new ball game. Yeah. Like, I Even if it's like a little, mm. like a gift bag with like the bubbles and the erasers and the pencils and the stickers and the whatever. Oh, no but way. But still, you're doing it for 23 kids or, you know. I, and I, it's either landfill or it's. Yeah, fully, fully. Oh, man. So, yeah. I wouldn't, you know what we we don't do this is kind of accidental once upon a time we all used to go to mum and dad's for Christmas lunch and then we all got married and had kids and Christmas started getting a bit complicated and my dad was really sweet he's like well you guys have your own families why don't you do your own Christmas and I was there in the corner just you know like you both loving Christmas going no I want to come to yours for Christmas yeah so Christmas with my family kind of my um my immediate family just sort of fell apart. And so on Christmas Day, because I'm not going to cook a roast for four people, two of whom will not eat it because they're small humans who are fussy, we actually don't have any traditional meal on Christmas Day anymore if we're here in Sydney. My in-laws are in Adelaide, so we'll go there and then it's a whole different ballgame. And it feels so weird. As much as I refuse to start doing that just 
like I said, for the four of us, I really miss it. Mm. What about the orphans' Christmas? Like, hook up with another family? And... No, I want my family, Danielle. Oh, meanwhile, your dad <laughs> is like kicking back in the corner, going, "Ah, oh, the serenity." Yes. <laughs> no, it's probably mum that's doing that because she was the one that did the whole meal. Mm. Um, and I, it's interesting because I look around and see everyone has their different traditions, mm. and we've kind of accidentally lost one that I like, maybe I'll just have to bring it back. I'll just send them a link to this podcast. Yes, I think <laughs> it's so quite free. common. My heart is broken. It, it's definitely common, especially now that the world is, now that everyone is moving around and people live in different countries and different states and it's possible. For most of human history, it was just your little village and you were related to everyone in that village. And so the tradition would just continue to pass down mm. right from generation to generation. And so your grandmother's Christmas was the same Christmas that your mother had. And so it is quite sad to let go of your Christmas. Like, you're still allowed to be a kid on that day. It can still feel exciting to eat the same foods and yes. do the same things. Now, to move Wear from America... silly hat. Yeah, if that's, like, what really mattered to you. But to move from America all the way over here, it's a completely opposite schedule, like, seasonally. I grew up where it was white, snowy, every single Christmas. And so that's hard for me. I know that that's not a part of the don't conversation, but it is, it can be quite traumatizing to, even as a, you know, a grown man, lose touch to what Christmas meant to you and have to kind of reshape and, have you ever taken, I mean, I know there are only two, but have you gone back for a white Christmas? We've not gone back for a white Christmas. Also, global warming has changed things up a little bit. So it doesn't snow in November or December or January anymore. you got to wait till February. Oh, right. wow. Yeah. Have a delayed Christmas. Mm. It's not something that anyone wants to experience at this time of year. But have you had to deal with lice? And if so, what did you do? So I covered their hair in olive oil. Today, the myth is coconut oil, because but it was back then, it was olive oil. And I wrapped it in glad wrap to suffocate them, which is a myth, by the way, because the lice have loads of breathing holes all over their bodies. So they're not actually able to be suffocated. So that's not, that didn't work. So that's Debbie McIntyre, who is the founder of No Knits Now. And earlier in the year, I interviewed her on Feed, Play, Love. And the funny thing about that was um, at the time, my producer was a, a millennial who didn't have children. And she just couldn't fathom how I managed to talk to this woman for 45 minutes. I had so many questions. I was not letting her leave. I know everything there is to know about lice now. And, you know, they're pretty much unavoidable. I remember hearing about them first uh, from friends who had older kids saying, once they go to school, it's over. You are going to get lice. And I'm like, no, I'm not. No, they're not. It happens. And if you're really unlucky, you'll get it as well. This week on Rendezvous, Darren Levin wrote about his family getting lice. And he said, I'm not sure if you've ever tried to eradicate head lice before, but they're about as stubbornly difficult to kill as that evil robot cop from Terminator 2, mm -hmm. which I completely agree with. Danielle, have your kids had lice? I'm loath to talk about this. I'm you're itching. Say, yes. I'm itching. No, because... I have never had them and my <gasps> children have never had them. And I feel like the sec uh, if any conversations ever go down, I just shut up. I'm like, mm. yes. like an attempt fate. No, they're unicorn so, children. Mm -hmm. They're like the ones that so, slip through. So I, well, they certainly didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I am definitely like quite reticent to have any kind of conversation around it. I know nothing about it. I may have had crabs once, but that's a totally different conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and yeah, no, I, I put it down to, I don't wash their hair that often. 
Well, you know what? I was the same as you. So I was at a barbecue and we were talking, lice came up because it had been going through the school. And I said, Darcy's never had lice. And her hair now, she's just so loving it long. It's almost down to her waist. And she'd never had it. And one of the mums just was bowled over going, I can't believe you haven't had lice the next week. Uh, mm-hmm. See? That's yeah. not going to happen to you. you Whole family of lice in one week. <laughs> Christmas Day, I'm going to be knocking on your door. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you the link to that interview. So have you? Have your kids had it? They have not had lice. No. I have had lice. My whole family had lice at some point, I absolutely remember. Mm. And so when I knew that this was going to be a subject today, I was just interested. It was like one of the few parenting things that I felt like I'd, I'd skipped over because I was a psycho before I became a dad and looked into every major category that could potentially affect me. I felt knowledgeable. And then this got sent through and I thought, <laughs> okay, well, I'll go through my Rolodex of like what I remember. And I mm. remember mayonnaise being a thing. I remember <gasps> olive oil being a thing. Oh, you're, you're whipping on a salad. <laughs> Vinegar was really popular for a while. And then they had, I know... I do remember maybe like five or six years ago, a friend of mine um, had a really young child and I do remember technology being a part of the conversation now that they had special combs that vibrated and oh my Lord. Um, heat straighteners, you know, doesn't like, work, doesn't work. I know. Mm-hmm. So I actually was really interested in like what the is really popular in Australia right now, like what are parents getting into? And there's this entire thing. It's called air Ali, I think, A-L-L-E at the end. And it's a dehydrating heat treatment, which kills off 99.3% of nits, which are eggs, and 88.4% of adult lice. It has been, this company was so popular, it is now in 32 countries, including in Australia at Westfield Chatswood. And now people are paying $200 (gasps) plus to go and have each strand of hair, which you have 10 to 12, 15,000 of them, each strand, like individually whatever heat hydrated off i was like the future of lice is tech i was surprised to see that actually in the article he said they he looked into like a, a lice salon like oh, that's no, a thing. They, they are yeah. a thing the woman i talked to is a mobile niche picker so she <laughs> goes around she learned it from a hasidic community in new york city wow. where she just watched someone do it and the thing about the whatever that heat thing is that people yeah. are spending hundreds of dollars on I get it because what Debbie was saying is it's all about removing the eggs and the only way to remove the eggs is to comb the hair through. So there's lots of products that kill the adults, adults, which is, yes, of course, you want to get rid of those as soon as possible. But if you don't get rid of the eggs, they'll just come back. Mm. Not that I even want to know, but do they lay like 5 million eggs a day? Are they like... Debbie said there was quite a lot, like at least... 10 or something each time but it depends how many adults you have in your head and the life cycle is about nine days i tell you what it was fascinating from the fact that she was taught how to pick knits out of kids heads from this Mm. community and tiny community in new york city to uh actually the reason why they are so prolific in australia and so hard to kill well they are i read an article that they have basically, as a species, learned to kind of fight off and fend most of what we considered strong mm. antibiotics. But or most whatever. of the stuff that we would put on our heads as kids is so friggin' toxic. Yeah. But the whole thing about disinfecting the whole house no, you could put 
toys or whatever you're worried about in a bag for 24 hours, take them out, the lice will be dead. Wow. Nips I think we dead. used to freeze them. Like, I think you used to take your Head. pillowcase and freeze <laughs> it. Put, just like, put your child in, put the it in the freezer. Yeah, yeah right. maybe that would well, work. I love that we could talk about that for so long and neither of you had had the horror <laughs> of lice yet. Well, good. Knock and I hope it, And I really hope. Let's touch some wood. Where is yeah, Edward in the studio? Like, so thank you. Danielle does not get this over Christmas. Our final topic in just a moment. We're going to be reflecting on 2019. Given this is the last parent panel for 2019, I thought we could look back over the year. Was it a good one? Are you happy to start fresh in 2020? And uh, what were the main parenting wins and fails of 2019? Sean, what's your reflection on the last year? I mean, the last year has been quite challenging having two-year-olds, you know, that's an oh interesting year. Oh my God, two year. two-year-olds, you know, please. It's, it's been quite, I haven't slept, you know, in the entire year, so I don't know that I'll remember a ton of it. I also think just like what it means to be a parent in the last year, it's been like a difficult time to just be a human politically and the climate and our politics and our culture, and it's just an interesting time. I don't want to look back at 2019 and think of it as a bad year, but I would be lying if I said that I won't, want to look back at this year and say, thank goodness it's gone. And and that is actually what I'm most proud of of 2019 is like owning and communicating with others my truth of parenting. So much of the parenting landscape in media and on social media is like glorified, performative. It's beautiful and it's amazing and our kids are fantastic. But everyone who's had a child in that age range that I've had mine for the la- my two kids for the last year knows that it's like really, really, really difficult. And I didn't enjoy it a lot. Like I was sleep deprived and challenged with my identity and what it meant to be a stay at home parent and then a full time worker and then back out of it. And, and so I'll be happy for them to grow up a little bit more for me to kind of find my feet a little bit more to get more confident in that dialogue of honesty with others. Like I'm going to go into 2020 with that in and in my little backpack which is we're not doing anyone in the parenting community any good by glorifying or lying about the experience it is very very difficult and it is difficult really you know the entire time but definitely in those first couple years yeah absolutely what about you danielle please bring in the eloping Uh, Definitely a highlight of the year. I've had an incredible year, I have to say. I just wanted to say one thing to you on that, Sean. I remember when my children were around your age, and I remember saying to someone with older kids, tell me, please tell me it gets easier. And they just said it just gets different. Different. And, I think and, it gets easier, yeah, but anyway. It, but it is. It's, it's different. We've got different issues that are coming up. You know, I was just talking to my son about, you know, porn and, and you know, stuff like that and bullying and sexuality and mm. stuff like that. So it's like it's different landscape, but it does get easier. Mm. Like, I think the truth about... You will about, sleep one day soon. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the truth about young kids, and I, there, there are a few in this office that have young children, and I said the truth of it is I don't think... I mean, this will come back and bite me when I have teenagers, I'm sure, but... Uh, The challenges of parenting, I think, continue. But what doesn't continue is the physical reliance and the way that you are so exhausted and so tired when they're small that sorting out those problems, you just don't have the headspace for it. And you Mm. also don't have any time to yourself from which to go off and meet the challenges. That's why I think the early years are the hardest because... Mm. And also you're so new to it. Yep. By the time your kids are six, seven, eight, whatever, 
you're a little bit more um, is it battle bleeding? Weir- battle is it bleeding? Weary. If it's not bleeding, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Hold on. I'm looking at the whole child. You seem fine. Just get on with it. Um, so I feel that that is definitely what I've discovered. Also, I was saying, you know, by the time they're at least three or four, they start to listen a little bit better because their brains have developed more. Mm. Yeah. So that you, I do agree there are more challenges, but I also 100% think that the early years mm. are the toughest and the most demanding physically yeah. for a parent. And I yeah. think we forget that a little bit evolutionarily, and it makes total sense women forget about the actual childbirth experience so that two years later they might potentially do it again, right? You're like, well, the positives outweigh the negatives. And I think that's beautiful. I think we should all think about parenting that way. But most people who I've encountered who have said something accidentally offensive like, oh, it was like the most beautiful time of my life. And you're sitting there (laughs) in it, in the moment, thinking "This is that's not my experience of this. I can't believe who am I what happened to myself my relationship is falling up all that stuff and I do think it's really powerful to try to remind ourselves of that so we can look back and go wow that was challenging and we've gotten here I don't think it gets better I think we get better Mm. like we have more power more skill we have to adapt to this new title that we have we have to adapt to our life changing and having children around and so hopefully it gets better but I don't know that like parenting necessarily gets easier i think mm. we just we have more skills yeah we we skill up mm. okay so back to your oh sorry okay so 2019 uh yeah i've had an incredible year like if i look back at where i was last christmas um you know i just finished a load of study i just come out of a really tough year full of lots of grief um and i was in i, I i'd been in the weeds i was in the hurt locker for the last six months of last year so this year has been a massive revolution for me like i've really changed um, I've changed my career. I've changed my mindset. I've changed. I've got a new husband. <laughs> um, you know, there's so much has changed by, you know, I, I went and learned some stuff. I went and learned about me. I went and put some bags down, you know, and I, and I really stepped into, you know, the person that I wanted to become, you know. Um, so this year has been incredible for me. Uh, as for like the parenting wins and parenting fails, you know, perhaps this year, I think one of my wins that I'm most proud of parenting wise is recognizing when my children needed help that I couldn't give them, mm. which was really big um, mm. to be able to say, okay, my hand is up. I, I, you know, I'm not too sure what we need here, but let's go and explore this together as a family and be really proactive about, you know, finding some answers for you, little one, you know, and, uh, and, and that was really awesome. And going through that process together um, has been great and it has um, enhanced our communication around when we've got staff, you know, because there's always going to be staff. So knowing that they can come to me, I think has been, um, you know, that's been really awesome to bolster that. And, uh, and my fail, I have to share, because um, this happened just recently. My nine-year-old was caught by his nana, my mum, dropping the F-bomb at his sister. And, uh, and nana was really cool about it. Nana was like, hey, you know, my, my boy, I just expect a little bit more from you. You know, it's not a nice word to come out of a kid's mouth. And, um, and I know that you hear it regularly at school. Oh, no. And, <laughs> and he said... Oh, I don't hear it all the time at school. I hear it from mummy. <laughs> and my mum side-eyed me. And like, I mean, she, she also, she doesn't mind a bit of fruity language, yeah. but she side-eyed me. She was like, I think it's time we get a swear jar 
So anyway, I've got a new savings program. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> that that thing is so full of notes already. It's like we're just okay. Tonight's going to be a, a, a fun night. I'm just going to put twenty bucks in. <laughs> Oh, I love it. That is brilliant. Well, thank you both so much for coming in and doing the last show of the year with us. Thank you. Um, I wish you both a very lovely Christmas. You too. With lots of spoiling of the children. We'll be, we'll be doing that. That I can promise. And Instagram it. I am going to watch your Instagram, okay. done, Sean. Done, I'll done. be the one supporting you, high-fiving you, you. We want Christmas carols. You know we want it all. Oh, goodness. Fake <laughs> snow. Come on. Bring it on. Thank you. That was our last parent panel for 2019. We're taking a short break and we'll be back on the 16th of January. Wishing you all a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year and see you in 2020. You've been listening to The Parent Panel, a babyology podcast, hosted and produced by me, Siobhan Hunt. For more information on the show or to check out other episodes with equally funny and insightful guests, you can find all you need at our website, babyology.com.au forward slash parent panel. Mm-hmm.